Welcome to Follow the Science, an exploration of science, medicine, and medical misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast is funded by a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists. This week, I'm going to talk about how the pandemic might have started with the jump from another animal, possibly a bat, into human beings. It might have started in a cave where people were exploring or collecting bat guano or through some intermediate animal that humans were eating. Last week, in episode 16, and a few weeks back in episode 5, I had guests talk about the possibility that the virus originated in some sort of lab accident. That's a controversial idea, but something experts can't completely rule out. Now I want to look at the other possibilities how it might have jumped to humans through other human activities. My guest is David Quammen, who's a great science writer, the author of a number of books on the natural world, and the relevant one here is called Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. It was published in 2012, and I read it back then, and then reread every page during this pandemic, where it puts our current situation into some context. Part of what makes Spillover such a great book was the way that Quammen followed different teams of pandemic detectives around the world to understand how past pandemics have started and how they spread. He followed along on an expedition to understand the origin of SARS, now called SARS-1, which was a coronavirus pandemic that started in 2002. Back then, international teams pieced together the early history of that disease in detail from the specific floor of a hotel where the virus was spread from one guest to a bunch of others, to the seats that were occupied by infected people on airplanes. We haven't seen anything like that kind of detective work with SARS-2, our current pandemic coronavirus. The World Health Organization did send a team to China to investigate, but so far that's given us only the haziest information. Maybe we could start by talking about the um, investigation into SARS-1 and what it was like and um, what kind of how the investigation was done and what you learned. Here was a novel coronavirus that emerged in Guangdong province, southern China, in late 2002 and started making people very sick and being communicated uh, to a lot of healthcare workers. And uh, one of those healthcare workers was a doctor who then rode a bus to Hong Kong, crossing the border uh, from the, the Pearl River Delta area of uh, Shenzhen City and, and the other areas on the mainland there to going to Hong Kong for his nephew's wedding, checked into the Metropol Hotel as it was then uh, got a room on the ninth floor. If I recall correctly, it was room 911. And then got too sick to go to his nephew's wedding. And something happened. A super spreader event happened in the Metropole Hotel on the ninth floor. It's still not known exactly what happened. Either he coughed a lot or, or maybe he vomited or maybe he just breathed heavily in the elevator, but particularly it seems to be the corridor of the ninth floor, and people were infected. A number of people got infected who were staying in other rooms on the ninth floor of the Metropole Hotel, and they finished their vacations and went to the airport and flew home to Toronto 
and to other places, uh, to Singapore. And then eventually it spread also to Beijing and to Bangkok and to Hanoi, if I recall correctly, and infected about 8,000 people, scared the bejesus out of people who follow emerging diseases because it was transmissible by the respiratory route and had a case fatality rate of about 10%, which is huge, of course. SARS-1 was a virus with a similar name, but a very different effect on people from our current coronavirus. It was a lot less transmissible, but a lot more deadly. Guaman says one reason he thinks that pandemic was so much more quickly controlled was that it hit countries with the right kinds of healthcare infrastructure and societal structure to deal with it. But it was it was controlled. It did not. Some people say, "Oh, SARS one, SARS as it was known then. We now call it SARS one. SARS one burned out. It did not burn out. It was not as transmissible as SARS two, so it didn't spread as quickly and uncontrollably. It was not transmissible from asymptomatic carriers like SARS two. So there were some things about it that made it somewhat less dangerous than." SARS-2, except that it had this high case fatality rate. So it infected about 8,000 people, killed about 800. The official number is 774. That doesn't count a couple of aftershocks when it escaped from a, a lab, I think, later on. So it killed 774 people. And then because of fast science and rigorous public health constraints and controls, it was gotten under control and stopped. We were lucky we were really lucky with SARS. It was a bullet that flew by the ear of humanity. And some people heard the swish and learned from it, and some people did not. And how did how was the uh, that, that super spreader event in the hotel, how was that traced? Was that um, something that was clear from the beginning, or did it take a lot of contact tracing to figure out where all these different people? Oh, yeah. It took time. It took rigorous work. Public health authorities in Hong Kong and around the world. It was, I suppose, what you would call shoe leather epidemiology, meaning that they were not doing that then with molecular sequences. They were doing it by interviewing people, by gathering information, uh, by tracing context, by seeing who was exposed to who else. And, and didn't you go along on that as a journalist on one of their um, fact-finding trips? I went along on a field trip with an EcoHealth Alliance fellow named Alexi Kamura. Alexi is a very bright guy, still with EcoHealth Alliance. He was doing his PhD fieldwork at that point. And I was in touch with Peter and other people at EcoHealth. And Alexi was going to China to essentially try and do more work tracing the reservoir hosts of SARS-1. So he was looking for SARS-1 in bats in caves in southern China. And I went with him and we climbed into caves in southern China and, and caught bats and took samples. How do you get samples from bats? There are a couple of ways. First of all, you, you capture the bats in the cave. You put them in cloth sacks like pillowcases, very gently. You carry them out to a field lab somewhere where you've got a table and light and a lot of tools. You anesthetize them temporarily. Then you take fecal swabs and saliva swabs 
and in some cases blood samples from a tiny, tiny little vein in the tail membrane of the bat. It's difficult to get much blood out of a tiny vein in the tail wing of a small, these are not giant fruit bats, these are small insectivorous bats, so the size of a large mouse. You get a drop and then hey, we got a drop. We get See if you can get another drop. I got another drop. Okay. Call it good. Put that into a tiny little tube that's got some um, chemical in it that will preserve the RNA uh, of that virus, if there's an RNA virus in that blood. Uh, unfortunately for Alexi, at that point, I didn't bring him luck and the, the samples that we collected while I was with him did not turn out to contain SARS-1. It was plenty interesting getting down on your belly, on my belly, and climbing through a narrow slot to get into that cave and then coming up into this large chamber and there are all these little bats flying around. And then uh, Alexei and his Chinese colleagues started netting them using a butterfly net and also a sort of a, um, a mist net, if I recall correctly. Sounds a little hazardous. I mean, was there a danger that you could get exposed to a bat virus uh, by trying to do this? Yes, there was. And I'm not even sure that I should still talk. Well, it's in my book, though. We were not wearing PPE at that particular point. And that was Alexi's call. And it was uh, a call that did not turn out to be disastrous for any of us. But it was something I asked him about. How come we're not wearing PPE? And he gave me an answer, and the answer is in spillover. I can't remember his exact wording, but it was essentially, well, everything in life is a little bit dangerous. With other people from EcoHealth, I was wearing coveralls and two pairs of gloves and goggles and a, a knit hat and a headlamp because it was the middle of the night and a respirator mask. That was when we were looking for a different virus. That was when we were looking for Nipah virus. And I was in Bangladesh on the patchy roof of a derelict warehouse in Southern Bangladesh in the middle of the night. And we were trapping giant fruit bats to look for Nipah virus. Did you get any clues or did the people you were uh, following get clues as to how these viruses are spilling over from bats to humans? Well, that's part of their work. Yes, that's one of the things that they look at. That's part of the detective work that happens when a spillover first occurs. So you've got a new virus in northern Malaysia that's infecting people, and it's causing some form of disease that looks like Japanese encephalitis, which is caused by a virus carried by mosquitoes. And so you sample the people who are getting sick and dying, and you don't find the Japanese encephalitis virus, you find a new virus that belongs to the paramyxovirus family. And you give it a name after a village in Malaysia. You call it Nipah, N-I-P-A-H. And then you ask yourself, well, how did this get into humans? And why are the humans that it's gotten into all people who are involved in the pork industry? And then the epidemiologist in you says, aha, there's a pattern. It must be something to do with raising of pigs and the selling of pigs and selling of pork. Um, so you look at how that's happening. You go to the pig farms in northern Malaysia, and you see that there's a lot of habitat that's been cut down to make room for agriculture in northern Malaysia. And that habitat is tropical forest that is habitat for giant fruit bats, among other creatures. You notice that the pig farmers have mango trees and star fruit trees growing in the vicinity of their big pig corrals. And you notice that giant fruit bats are coming to those domestic fruit trees 
and eating the fruit and dropping the pulp. And some of that pulp is falling into the pig corrals. This is all epidemiological detective work. And you say, aha, that's a possible route. Well, so then let's let's sample those fruit bats. They're already a suspect. So let's sample the fruit bats. And lo and behold, you sample the fruit bats. This is the kind of work that EcoHealth does. And you find the same virus in the fruit bats that you've been fi finding in the people who've gotten sick. So there you have a story. You have a chain of evidence that tells you probably how the spillover occurred. Did SARS-1 have any story like that? Was there anything uh, as coherent as that? There are, there are some things. There was no evidence that people in the city of Shenzhen were eating bats, but they were eating civets. A civet is this badger-like animal that belongs to, if I recall correctly, the viverid family, which is the family that also includes mongooses. But civets are or were valued as wild animals for food in southern China in particular. And there was a trade in civets sold live in food markets. And there was a connection between restaurants that served civet legally or illegally, I can't quite recall now. And at least one of the first uh, cases, uh, it was a chef in one of those restaurants. So that threw suspicion on civets as the natural host, the reservoir host. And so immediately the government ordered the killing of civets and thousands of civets were killed that were being held in captivity. And that, that might have helped stem further spillovers because it was known that civets could carry this virus, but they were not, were not found to be the natural host, the reservoir host. They were an intermediate host. And bats seemed to be the natural host, the reservoir host, the, the host that the virus lives in over the long term for probably for thousands or mi of millions of years that it, it lives in and without causing symptoms, without showing itself um, inconspicuously. It was very gripping the way you told it in your book. And I, so that, that brings me to the question of bats and why so many viruses that affect humans seem to be um, uh, in bats or bats seem to be the yeah. reservoir animal for. Yeah. And that's something that people keep asking and I keep writing about. <laughs> I've <laughs> written about it more recently in the New York Times in a, an extended op-ed. People ask why bats? It was beginning in 1998 eight with NEPA that people really started to notice bats. There was 1994 case of a bat-borne virus that spilled over in Australia and got into racehorses and was amplified and then got into the humans who were trying to save the racehorses and killed one out of three. And that became known as Hendra virus. It was found in bats, and then Nipah virus was found in bats. So people started saying, wow, bats? And then SARS was found in bats, and then MERS in 2012 was found in bats. Uh, rabies is found in bats. Retrospectively, people identified other viruses carried in bats. So why bats? Why bats? And people started, scientists started working on that subject, publishing papers on it. And so here are, here's a sketch of the, of the answers, both definite and likely. First of all, bats seem to be overly represented as 
reservoir hosts of these dangerous viruses that spill into humans. But one in every five species of mammal on earth is a species of bat. There are 1400 different species of bat. So bats are overly represented among mammal diversity. And therefore it might just seem that they're overly represented as reservoir hosts for viruses. But beyond that, some other things. Bats live long lives, especially for small creatures like the, the insectivorous bats, the size of a mouse. A mouse lives maybe two years. A bat that size can live 15 or 20 years. They live in dense aggregations. You can crawl into one of those caves I was talking about and see, and I have seen, 60,000 bats huddled together, roosting together on the wall of a cave, like a great big buffalo robe hung up on somebody's you know, Western decor ranch house wall. Uh, 60,000 bats, bats three deep, roosting together. So living a long time, and living in such dense aggregations, those are great circumstances for constantly recirculating a virus through a population. The, the virus never goes extinct in a population like that. But beyond that, there's something else, and that is that bats' immune systems seem to have evolved to be forgiving of the presence of foreign things, foreign infections, even unusual molecules. And why would that be? Well, bats are the only flying mammal, the only truly flying mammal, and that puts extraordinary stress on their physiology. Um, their heart rates go up by more than an order of magnitude when they start to fly. There's all this other stress on their physiology from flying, and that stress creates some of those peculiar molecules that I mentioned, and an immune system can react to those molecules, even though they're parts of uh, or re parts resulting from the bat's own DNA. And so if they had normal immune systems, they would likely be in a state of constant autoimmune disease. And so that allows them to harbor viruses without getting symptoms that they, they may be better than other animals at just living? Living with their viruses. Because over millions of years, they seem to have evolved immune systems that don't respond with inflammation to the presence of foreign entities like these peculiar molecules, free radicals, or the molecules on the outside of a virus. So they don't respond as much to those. One study I read recently said that uh, sequencing of the genome of a certain kind of bat showed that it had half as many genes related to its immune system as a human does, half as many immune system genes. And that reflects probably the fact that over millions of years, they have down-regulated their immune systems so that they just don't react as much. Though they, they're they very vulnerable, I guess, to fungus or, I mean, I, I, got, I think you mentioned this in your New York Times article that the that they've been really afflicted by a fungus. That's right. Yes. The, the fungus that causes something called white nose syndrome. They, um, they, well, what happens with that is that the fungus grows on them it grows on their wings and causes damage, physical, you know, mechanical damage to their wings. It grows on their noses and irritates them. We're talking about North American hibernating bats. Um, so bats that live in cold places and instead of migrating south to warm places in the winter, they go into caves where the temperature is steady and they, they hibernate in caves. And the caves are warmer than the outside. The caves are are, are moist. And those are good circumstances for this fungus to grow. The fungus is, is a new fungus to North America, probably brought over from Europe. Um, 
and it got into these caves where these bats live and it grows on them, grows aggressively on them, but it doesn't kill them. What kills them is that it wakes them up in the middle of winter and they get hungry and they go outside looking for insect food and there are no insects because it's the middle of winter in upstate New York or in Vermont or in Montana and they fly around and then they die. And that's what's been killing them. It's a, it's a sort of an alarming tale. So it's very alarming. Yeah, there's there there has been a huge population crash for a number of our species of North American hibernating bats. This has all happened since 2006. When my guest David Quammen and I had this conversation, the World Health Organization hadn't yet wrapped up its investigation into the origin of the pandemic. Not that that investigation's results changed anything, since WHO came up with very little information. Kwame and I talked about why these kinds of investigations are so important. We need to know where this thing came from for a couple of different reasons. One is that knowing where it came from helps us prevent another spillover of the same virus or a similar virus, but one that might not be similar enough to be handled by the vaccines that we've now got. And another reason we need more information is because there are lots of accusations, conspiracy theories, suppositions about this being an engineered virus or a laboratory escaped virus that are going around. And those have to be answered one way or another, have to be put to rest. There's there's no solid evidence for those theories. I've been drinking from the fire hose of information about that. Um, there's circumstantial evidence that has allowed people to raise questions about uh, either an engineered virus or an escaped virus. But it's all questions and suppositions at this point, and it would be very valuable to have some some data be, besides circumstantial evidence that could answer that question. So in other words, it's still a completely open question whether it was a laboratory escape, whether there was an intermediate animal, whether it, it came directly from bats in some way. Well, I think for me, the default explanation at this point is that it came from a wild animal, then it's not a laboratory escape for, for a couple of reasons. Because the molecular evolutionists and, and molecular virologists that I trust most have said both privately to me and publicly in print that, first of all, this is not an engineered virus, because if you were going to engineer a virus, and they know how to engineer a virus um, to do these things, you wouldn't do it in this way. There are lots of forms of evidence in the genome of this virus that suggests that it had to be something that evolved in nature and comparing this virus to other coronaviruses that have been found in nature, both in bats and in pangolins. Um, There's a lot more sampling that needs to be done um, to see if we can find a virus that's closer to this one that does reside in a bat or a pangolin, more likely a bat. Um, In terms of lab escape, it just does not seem to me at all likely in his book, Kwame details all sorts of poaching, animal trafficking, and habitat encroachment, putting humans in contact with bats and other wildlife, which made me wonder how natural a so-called natural origin of the pandemic could have been. I asked him how humans might change our ways to make it less likely that we'll see more of these spillover events. Yeah, one of the things I say over and over again is that, you know, this is not about the behavior of people in China who eat bats or pangolins or civets or whatever. This is about all of us. All the decisions that we make have impacts that drive viruses from the natural world closer to us. If you've got a cell phone, if you've got a laptop computer with tantalum capacitors made from 
the mineral coltan that's mined in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, then you are commissioning people to serve as your proxies to go in and mine that coltan. What are they going to eat for protein? Wild animals, monkeys, porcupines, bats. So there's a there's enough responsibility for everybody. That is interesting. Yes, that, that and that that's you know it would be actually really useful to have some of that be more transparent so that people maybe yeah. have a little yeah. more. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. I've been saying that over and over and over again. What you eat, how many children you have, if you have children, how much you travel, what you wear, all of that contributes to the size of your footprint on the natural world. And the size of your footprint on the natural world contributes to the question of how many viruses from wild animals you help to draw toward the human population. would be incredibly useful to know exactly where SARS-CoV-2 came from, what kind of an animal it originated in, whether it jumped from a couple of different animal species before it got to humans, and what human activities were to blame for its jump and spread around the human population. We may never get the answer to that, but what might turn out to be even more useful is a big picture view of how viruses around the globe jump from other species to us, how they start to spread around human populations, and what kinds of environmental destruction, hunting, or other human activities are putting us at risk. A lot of experts will say, while this pandemic has been terrible, The disease actually could be a lot more deadly, so the next one might even be worse. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam, with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman, with music by Kyle Imperator. If you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast fix.